The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Is happiness the goal of our lives or the means? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So you and I make decisions every single day. Some of these decisions are conscious, while others we make on autopilot. No matter how we make them, though, our decisions contribute to our feelings, whether they be pleasant or unpleasant. So if that's the case, what if we can, with more intention, enhance the feelings we want more of, like happiness, meaning, and joy? When I first started learning about the field of positive psychology, what sunk in quickly was that there had historically been little time spent studying how we engineer lives that are full of these powerful and pleasant emotions. Of course, we're going to have hard times, but why not get intentional about feeling better more often? And Sean Aker, who's joining me today, was one of the first in the field I heard guiding people in this direction with research and strategies. So that's what we're diving into. We're going to answer that big question. How can we intentionally be happier? Here's Sean. So I actually studied English and religion as an undergraduate, and then I went on to the divinity school. So I was studying Christian and Buddhist ethics. And I was looking at how your belief systems about the world change the way you act in it. Like, why do you give? Why do you forgive? Why would you care about the people you work with? And while I was there, people that were in the psychology department said, we want to ask some of those same questions with a psychological lens. What I realized now, looking back at it, is that story with Amy falling off the bunk bed and me telling her she's a unicorn, it created a split in that moment where she could either use her brain resources to look at the pain and suffering she just experienced, or she had a new narrative. And that narrative was driving a belief system that changed what happened next for her. So instead of staying crying on the floor, she got back up and started playing and felt super proud of herself as a unicorn. So I love this whole idea of the narrative driving the meaning behind why we do any of our actions. So what I study in positive psychology is what's that narrative or the lens to which you view the world that predicts your behavior and mindset within it? And then could you change that narrative in a way that would be powerful enough to create some sort of positive outcome for you? I think I was a kid who was always kind of like always reading fiction. I was always in like the fantasy world. I love I love fantasy books and fiction. And I've always been a reader, which also meant that I spent a lot of my time in a world that was maybe a little bit different from my own, but it was exciting and energizing. And I wonder how much effect that's had on my personality as an adult in which I spend my space in a world where I'm constantly looking for joy and like wanting to feel contentment. I assumed that every single person wanted to look for joy and goodness in the world and find a way to exist in it in that kind of bubble. Um, I've realized, of course, that that's not necessarily true, but I feel like it's because they aren't conditioned that way, not because it's not what they want. How do you think about how people are wired or not wired to look for joy? 
It's fascinating. I assumed the same thing you did. I thought that people naturally pursue joy. In in science, we look at people are naturally designed to pursue pleasure and avoid pain, which are actually completely different concepts, but a parallel path of that's just what you do. You work because you don't want the pain of unemployment and you like the pleasure of being able to buy things on Amazon, right? I love fantasy books as well. And if you know there are any skeptics listening, they're like, I'm not surprised that people who like positive psychology love fantasy. Um, because I think that some people's lives are so miserable, they look for fantasy because it's something different, right? And that's the critique that's often leveled at religion, right? Like your life is terrible now because of the structures around us. So we create some sort of pie in the sky belief system for you, but it clearly must be fantasy if you're avoiding the pain of this current world. There was a big debate that occurred between C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud around these ideas, not directly with one another, but actually indirectly. And Freud's idea was that God is just this wish fulfillment. It's this fantasy. Of course, he'd be the dad your dad never was, right? And C.S. Lewis's answer to that, which I think is so informative of what we're doing in positive psychology, is he said, uh, yes, of course, it's a wish fulfillment. Our wishes are designed for knowing that there's something better than what we're actually seeing. The reason I gravitate towards fantasy is because I have this huge hunger for there's got to be something more than just the daily grind or that I'm just putting calories into my body. And what I think that leads me to fantasy and both and leads me to religion and to positive psychology is this belief that there is something more. That it's not that the world is bad, but that there's actually a way of changing the way that you think about it, you see it, or the narrative around it that actually makes that world better for you or better for other people. To me, there's a difference between a sunset that's beautiful just because it's light waves bouncing off of different gases as it comes to the atmosphere versus it's light waves bouncing off of an atmosphere that was all created by a creator who loves me, right? That story would change how I'd see that sunset. So part of what we're really looking at is if there's multiple versions of realities in the world, is there a most valuable reality that we could actually look at that would be not only more realistic, but actually lead to better outcomes mm. for people? You know, I've been told before when I'm being super positive and I've had to learn how to temper my positivity when it was needed for me to acknowledge that something negative had happened and then at some point move into the reframe space. But I've been told or noticed people felt like I was sort of living a different reality than them. And in some ways it distanced them from me because it was almost like I wouldn't go down there with them and stay down there for very long. And as I started to study more of positive psychology and understand some of the research that's been done, I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, I don't want to stay down there for long. But I feel like people tend to enjoy bringing others into their misery. But there is this sense of like, when we're suffering, we do want to be acknowledged. But then there's also this like kind of threshold where you know it's gone beyond what actually is beneficial for the first party or the second party, either party. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I think the whole concept of toxic positivity in and of itself was such a fascinating challenge to positive psychology for the very reason that you're describing. Because I think some people see positivity as sugarcoating reality, right? That reality is terrible. And that when you talk about the positives, that you're just making us ignore the problems, the suffering, the inequality, the discrimination and racism that are embedded within our society ever since civilization began. On the one hand, there's this belief system that to be positive, you have to turn a blind eye to all the negatives, right? Um, and the other one is that if you're going to be really compassionate and loving to people, that you need to go where they are and stay where they are, right? And we see that same temptation with therapists where you have to actually start with 
acknowledgement of the suffering that people are experiencing, acknowledgement of the view and the world that they see. If you can't even see the world that they see, it's very difficult to have a real relationship with them, obviously. Um, so, but we focus so much of our energy on being able to see that person's world that we're not trying to change that person's world. And it's fascinating that even as I say that, I'm like, oh, I know someone's going to be like, you're not supposed to change other people. We change people all the time, right? We change people with the questions we ask. We change people with the smiles we give or that we don't give. And if we have a friend who's suffering, we don't want to just leave them in a negative place. We want to listen to them. And then once they feel listened to and heard, then we want to help walk them back out, which is what the role of therapy was supposed to be the entire time. The problem with toxic positivity was that it critiqued the wrong thing, that the people who are being positive are ignoring the problems within that society, right? But what was actually being toxic wasn't positivity, it's the ignorance of what other people are actually experiencing. But as soon as the critique turned on to toxic positivity, then we became fearful that the positivity was the toxic part. But positivity is just the belief that there are some good things even in the midst of a broken world, and that if we apply our behavior together, we can fix some of those. That's the entirety of positivity. It's always adaptive. It's never toxic. What became toxic was the ignorance of what actually people were experiencing or doing it at the wrong time. I know when I speak to a room full of, let's say, a thousand people, there are absolutely statistically people in that room, not only they're depressed, there's probably 10 to 20 percent that are on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication, but also someone is going through grief, right? At least one person. And if I thought about that before I gave my talk, it would paralyze me, right? But I get these people that come up to me after my talk and they'll tell me these horrific mm. stories. And they're like, you have no idea how much I need to hear this this day. I would not have said what I said if I knew that they were experiencing that. But something about where their mindset was or their reality, that hope that there could be something better was transformative for them in that moment. And is that how you define positive psychology as a field of study? What is it? Positive psychology to me is just simply studying the outliers. It's studying the people that don't look like the average, right? Dr. Martin Seligman from University of Pennsylvania and all the positive psychologists that have followed behind him have believed is that we need to study not just depression and disorder. We need to study the people that are doing something that seems to work for them, right? Why is it, for example, that we're told based upon the majority of academic research that childhood trauma only creates a state of debilitation and actually harms brain functioning? That's the story we tell people when their kids go through a trauma or when they go through a trauma, or that's what we tell in therapy sessions. Yet there are many people that are listening to this in a room full of a thousand people. There are a large minority of the people that are there, not because of the absence of suffering or trauma in their life, but because they went through trauma and somehow on the opposite side of something that's inherently negative, they either created a mindset, a mm -hmm. narrative or a behavioral pattern that actually caused them to experience post-traumatic growth. And our question then becomes, how did they do that? Is it just genetic? Or is there something by studying these positive outliers that allows us to glean information, not how we move people up to an average, but how we move the entire average up? You know, I think about some of my own traumas or the people who I know in my world, you know, perhaps going through trauma or coming out of it. And I remember for me, there was a point where I was like unhappy. I mean, I would say I was probably depressed. I was definitely anxious. I woke up and I was like, everything has to change. And I went and did it. Like with everything in me, I went and did it. And my life is completely different because I made that choice. Do you notice that a lot of people or the majority of people do not make that choice and then just continue to go down the downward spiral? I think it's a mixture. I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a choice. 
We've spent so much time in science teaching people that they are their genes and their environment that they think that's all they are, right? So if we can predict what's going to happen in your life, we've got your genes, which you can't control because you didn't pick your parents. And then the world, the environment, which has become so big, as we saw in the midst of COVID, not only can we not control the micro environment, we can't control the macro environment, right? So if all we are is genes and environment, there is no choice, right? That's where people get wrapped up into philosophical traps where they start to believe that nothing they do matters, right? And that's where they think neuroscience is taking them too. But when you look at change that happens in people's lives, those same people that don't think change can occur, you ask them if they're suddenly more depressed now than they were 10 years ago. And if they are, change is radically possible. Our question then becomes, could we actually move it in the other direction? So I went through three, almost three full years of depression while I was at Harvard. After I graduated, this is when I was living in the dorms with the first year students, trying to counsel them during that first competitive year of going from being top 1% of their high school to now half of them are below average. And while they were going through that narrative shift, I'm there to make sure that they feel connected, that they're going to study breaks, that they've got academic advising. In the midst of this, by the way, we found out that 80% of those Harvard students were going through depression at some time during their four years at this place of success. But what was fascinating was that while I was doing this, I started going through depression myself. I have genes for probably optimism if there's optimistic genes. We do have family history of depression, so it shouldn't have been a surprise, but suddenly started going down this path where meaning just started evaporating, right? And then I couldn't figure out how I got to that place. And then I couldn't figure out how to get back out of it. So the turning point for me actually was Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar and positive psychology teaching some of these positive habits to do with their life. That sounds like the easy way. Those positive habits that I talk about in my talk, I talked about these four positive habits and I actually do a fifth. I probably do 80% of those habits more than 90% of the days since I went through depression. Um, I write down or say out loud three new things you're grateful for that occurred over the past 24 hours. So they have to be new and you can't repeat them. You journal about a positive experience for two minutes. I usually spend more time than that because journaling is one of my favorite things I do. But it has to be those meaningful experiences, not just the negative. Otherwise, that causes rumination. Um, 15 minute brisk walk in terms of exercise, but 15 minutes of brisk walk four to five times a week is equivalent to taking one of the strongest tier of antidepressants we've got. I watch my breath going out. I mix that with a prayer. And then you write a two-minute pause email or text message each day praising or thanking somebody. And I'd probably do four out of the five of those almost every day. That being said, I couldn't do any of those habits when I was depressed because I, I didn't care. And the turning point for me was something that's defined the second half of my research career is I actually had to open up to my eight closest friends and family, some of whom were my competitors there at Harvard, and let them know that I was going through depression. And I was like, can't do anything. It's genetic, probably. I just want to tell somebody. The groundswell support was amazing. People were calling me, meeting up with me, emailing me, bringing me cupcakes, which is not why I did it, but they were great. But as soon as I started letting those people in, there's a study that's become central to the work that I do. These two perception researchers out in Virginia found that if you look at a hill, you need to climb in front of you. Your brain will show you a picture of a hill in your visual cortex. My dad was a neuroscientist of the census. That's actually what he studied. We know that you can turn light waves into what looks like a hill in your brain. That's a miracle in and of itself. But then what they found was if you look at that hill by yourself, the picture your brain shows you of that hill looks subjectively 20 to 30% steeper when you're alone compared to when you're placed next to a participant that you're told is going to climb the hill with you. And suddenly the perception of that hill gets transformed unconsciously by the brain. Your brain's warping it and saying, you don't have the resources. You don't have another person 
to go on this hill, it's actually steeper than you think. What happens in those moments is it turns out it wasn't just the physical ones. And we study those out with Marines I work with out at Camp Pendleton. This is, it turns out it's the emotional ones as well. Overcoming depression, overcoming anxiety, looking at a world where it feels like the world is too big and we're too small, right? This is trying to deal with the trauma that's been experienced within your life. Those hills rise and fall based upon whether or not you think you're alone or with other people. I think that either people don't think change is a, a possibility or a choice for them. Your only option is to wait for the world to change, right? The other option is we try to create these patterns, but we try to do it alone. But happiness is not an individual sport at all. Happiness must be pursued in an interconnected way. The greatest predictor of long-term levels of happiness, as you know, is social connection. We're taking a quick break. When we get back, Sean discusses how he's used the science of positive psychology to work through states and experiences of depression and why a support system is so powerful. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with author and happiness researcher, Sean Aker. What makes me so excited about positive psychology and this conversation and a few things that you've said are what are our narratives, um, believing that we can change or that things can change, deciding essentially that we want to create social support networks that help us get through things is that there is choice. Like that is the thing that makes me feel most excited is that I think so many of us live in a world, our own little world, where we believe there is no choice, that we are stuck with what we have and it's just the cards you're dealt. I've heard people say, it drives me nuts. It must be nice. You know, like they look at what someone else has, they envy it, but you know they believe they can't have it and go, must be nice. I'm like, don't say that. Choose differently because you can. Yeah, I I wish more people would have that realization, right? Because I think that some people think some people are just born happy and others aren't. That's only half the story, right? But I, I have to tell you this brief story. It's going to sound like I'm name dropping at first and you're going to realize, whoa, he's definitely not. So I got to do a interview for Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey out at her house. And uh, right. So now that sounds like, but I had never met a celebrity at this point. I thought I'd be 
normal and I wasn't <laughs> You were <all>. fangirling? <laughs> oh my goodness. I didn't even realize I got out there and they make you wait all morning up at the top of a property. You know how they have green rooms for talks? They had a green house at the top of a property. They made me change my clothes four times to match her outfit and the lighting and, the, and anyway. And then they put you in a golf cart and you go by yourself down a hill through a redwood forest that she has on her property as one does. And then they have three camera crews to film this first beautiful organic meeting with Oprah. And I saw her, my brain just turned off. It was like, nope, I'm out. And she went, Sean, 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 and raised her hands. And I didn't know, I didn't know the protocol, like Oprah, Oprah, Oprah. So I said nothing. I just, I literally just stared at her and she had her hands up. So my little brain thought we are doing a high five. And so I grabbed her hands, but we were not, we were not doing a high five. We grabbed this weird claw hold and then started rotating in a circle twice till they had to shut off the cameras. And <laughs> if you ever see that episode where I see Oprah for the first time, that's the second time we had to do the whole thing all over again. But a few minutes later, she makes you feel so comfortable, you'll tell her anything, which is why she's amazing. And they were breaking down the cameras and I turned to her and I think this is the point you were making about people who think, oh, it must be nice. Uh, they were breaking down the cameras. I said, Oprah, I'm so disappointed with the interview because we ran out of time and we didn't get to talk about going through depression. Because it's so easy to hear all this research and be like, yeah, of course he's happy. He's a happiness researcher, right? He's married to a happiness researcher, right? And of course, Oprah's happy, right? I don't know all the demographics of the people listening, but if you don't have it and think about the challenges in your life, if you don't have it, just add in a billion dollars of private jet and all your celebrity friends, right? Got to be easy to be happier if you're Oprah. Right. And she said, I went through two years of depression at the height of my career while making the most money when I didn't want to go on living. And I told her I went through three years of depression while I was at Harvard teaching people how not to become depressed. And she turned back on the cameras and we did a whole second hour. There's so much deeper than the first talking about how do you restart forward progress when it feels like happiness isn't a possibility anymore? And what is amazing to me in this research, especially in positive psychology, is we study these outliers that don't respond how necessarily I would respond. Like I find people that go through the things I'm most scared of, right? Loss of a child is at the very top of that or unemployment or poverty, right? And I can imagine how immediately unhappy I'd be. And then I meet them and they're so grateful. Many of them, not all of them, but some of them are so grateful and so kind and so optimistic and so hopeful. And I'm like, I want to be like you. How do I import that to my life with just different circumstances? But what it was breaking in my mind is this belief that if this was your external reality, then happiness just happens. And I think that's what happens to people when they go on social media and they think it must be nice, right? Or choice is easy for you. You don't experience the same level of inequality or discrimination that I do. And I think that that's true. The choices are harder at different levels. It was harder to be happier when my daughter was in NICU for 50 days, or I had to go through back surgery in the midst of COVID, or when I went through depression. But choice was still actually part of it. Um, it's just, it was a harder choice in those periods of time, which is why the social connection piece is so important. And to, to wrap a circle around things we were talking about, you know, I love fantasy as well. There's a book series by Lev Grossman called Magicians, and it's all about this guy who loves fantasy and he just thinks that if he could just do magic, then he'd be happy. And then he learns magic and he is not happy. So then he thinks, well, I need to get to this world that's like Narnia. And he gets there and he realizes he's not happy yet until he does this quest. But the whole three book series is about how he thought that if he got his fantasy, happiness just would happen. And what I would say to people who think that is the easiest way is not positive psychology is just look empirically, look at your world and see, are there people that are rich that seem to have everything that are 
wildly unhappy, that have terrible relationships, right? That have lost meaning within their life, right? They're having a negative effect upon the world. And then look around and see if are there people that are worse off than you that are able to choose something different? And if that's true, then there is a real possibility embedded within the system that's not about the external world. It's actually about choice or narrative or meaning. I've talked to so many people now who have said this over and over again. I've had the experience of having, you know, more and going, oh, I thought I'd be happy up here and I was depressed. Like I was not happy. I feel fortunate that my experience was doing the inner work and kind of focusing on my inner life. And that's how I got to where I am. But if you've seen Stutz, um, it's a documentary, Jonah Hill, yeah, interviewing his therapist. And one of the things his therapist says is there are a few things that will always be true about life. And one of them is constant work. And his point being that like happiness and all of this, these four things you talked about now, a fifth that you do every day. I'm similar. I do the five minute journal every day, which is three good things, two affirmations. What would make today great? This is constant work. And it's the realization, I think, for me and for probably all of us that would be really powerful is that there is no magic bullet. There is no magic pill for making it all good. It's really our ability to kind of boomerang back and bounce back to the constant work. And to your point, even when you're in a low point to say, I know everything in me doesn't want to do this, but if I just go do it, it will help. Yeah. And that was what I learned in the midst of depression was one that depression wasn't the end of the story that I'm not depressed forever, that behavior and leaning on other people, that social connection could change me. So I had no idea I'd be studying happiness someday right? when I was depressed, right? Much less I'd be getting to talk to you about this happiness. But I think one of the other things that was so crucial about this was that you don't just change your behaviors, you change the people around you. Yes. And this comes back to that LinkedIn study that I wanted to tell you about. So we got to work with a, a peer-to-peer praise company. We were working with WorkHuman. And what we were looking at was what happens when people praise one another. So I did a study a long time ago where I took the questions of social connection. Like, are there people there for you when you're having a hard time? You know, do you have someone you could lean on when you're having a difficult time? Right. Like uh, there are all questions about do you have support when you're going through something hard or when you're going through life? I would just flip the questions around. I was like, are you the type of person that people go to when they're having a hard time? Are you setting up social engagements at work or at home, right? Um, same questions, just flipped around. And what was stunning was the predictive value for their engagement at work, for their levels of happiness, for their levels of stress was nearly 10 times as high. <laughs> like It was incredible. So what we realized was it wasn't just, why aren't there people around for me? It was, how am I providing social support? As my grandmother was, used to say, right? If you want a friend, you got to be a friend. And I was like, well, I want a friend now. Right? And <laughs> you actually have to be a friend. So what we looked at at LinkedIn is on this peer-to-peer praise network, we got people to write pieces of praise peer-to-peer. So not even top-down, right? And uh, it allowed us to take things you're grateful for, but make it external. So I'm grateful for you, for your help on that project that you just gave me. Thank you so much for working here. You're this bright light every time I come in. I saw you go through breast cancer. It was so inspiring to me that you could overcome that and still be such a great mom. Whatever it is, big or small, that last one's big, but it, most of them were very small. What we found was, first of all, if you do this for 21 days in a row, your social connection score rises to the top 15% of people worldwide. So that's just reaching out to someone and saying, yeah, I appreciate you for this. Yes. It's a two minute text message or email praising or thanking someone for something. And what's amazing mm-hmm. about this is we have this mental map of social connection. And really, it's just the favorites on your phone most of the time. And what we got people to do is that's why most people stop this experiment at day eight on average. That's when you're like, I wrote to all my favorites and my mom twice. That's everyone. 
Um, then you have to scan just like you do with gratitude and you scan for who's that mentor who got you into this, right? Who's that teacher who transformed your life? What about that first grade teacher that transformed your kid's life, but you don't talk to them anymore because it's in fourth grade, right? Um, or that kid, that person moved away, your friends from high school, college, graduate program, whatever it is, you start to realize there's all these weak ties that don't light up on your mental map of social connection. But loneliness isn't the absence of people, it's the absence of feeling like you have a meaningful impact upon people or they upon you, which in a two minute text message, you do a meaningful act and those people light up on your mental map. So regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, where you start in a socially isolated position, your social connection score, which is the secret to happiness, the social connection score rises to the top of 15% of people worldwide. But the reason I got excited is what we learned in the LinkedIn study was that if someone receives three touch points of praise over a six month period of time, the retention rates for the new hires goes from 80% to 94%. Same pay, same building, same environment, same work. And yet the retention rates went up by 14%. Boy, what's amazing about that is that was six minutes. It was three two-minute interventions resulting in a 14% swing in whether or not somebody wanted to stay at that company. That's why they got excited about the study. Why I got excited is if you look into the data, if someone receives three touch points of praise over a six-month period of time from their peers, they start doubling the amount of praise that they were giving back into the system. So those people become praise prisms. They actually start causing more praise. And that's how cultures start to change. Cultures start to change not only when we enhance other people, but when we see that that's part of what it is to be human, that it's not the self-help approach to happiness, but really that when you enhance the ecosystem, we find a way of lighting up together in the dark. Mm. Wow. Praise prisms. I'm walking away thinking about this 21 days of increasing my social connection score. It's something I do, but I haven't done it this intentionally. Um, you know, Sean, where I'll end with here is you remind me of this episode of Super Soul Conversations. I listened to that show in 2019 and 2020 almost every day. And it changed my life. Wow. Um, and it's making me emotional thinking about it because it's one of the most powerful shows I think exists on the planet. And yes. obviously Oprah's work is unreal. There's an episode where she talks about a mother who she was talking to whose young, young son was dying. And as he was dying, he looked at her and he was like, oh, it was all so simple. And this kid understood best that like we have overcomplicated so much. As simple as six minutes is to increase your overall social connection score to make you feel less lonely. That tells me that we are so much simpler than we believe ourselves to be. And we are so much closer to contentment and joy than we understand today. Yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it. To me, happiness is the joy you feel moving towards your potential, your potential as being a human being. And I think that there's been several times when I've had to go under general anesthesia where I thought there's a possibility when I go to sleep, I just don't wake up in my thoughts. As I do that, we're, wow, it's so simple. I should have just loved more. That's it, right? When people hear that, they're like, that's simplistic. That's reductivist, right? But just because we made something more simple doesn't mean that's not more elegant. And what we're finding in this research over and over again is that happiness and joy is actually not the end. It's the means. It's the means to seeing what we're capable of as a parent, as a spouse, as a partner, as a friend, as a member of this community, right? As a member of this environment, as a member of a company, that what we're finding is that our happiness, when you look at it, is derived not just from our genes or from our environment, it's whether or not we have a meaningful story about the world, which you can't create without other people. 
right? Mm-hmm. That all of happiness, all of meaning is about whether or not you've actually started to make this a better world for you and for other people. And when we lose sight of that and we think it's very complicated that I have to achieve X and then happiness will just come. We've lost sight of what really actually creates greater levels of happiness in people's lives. We think happiness is so so much more mystical, so much more complex. But what we're finding is that we have genes that might predispose us towards negativity or at least towards threat detection. We live in a world that's broken and full of inequality, discrimination, and racism. And yet, when we change our behavioral patterns and the lens through which we view our world, turns out we can deviate dramatically from that pattern. And last thing I would say about this, which I think is so important, I never get to say this in these, which is I think a lot of people see happiness as the people who are happy are the ones who don't get it, right? You don't get what the world is actually like, or that happy people, they're not really the smart people, right? They're the ones who, you know, clearly don't have an intellectual bend, you know, and when you become very skeptical and cynical and critical, then then you really see you're a realist and you get it. Yeah. Negativity and threat detection. That's Mm -hmm. the easiest thing for the brain to do. Literally the simplest part of the brain, the amygdala Mm -hmm. around which the rest of the brain formed, right? Involved, right? What we could do as a frog, right? Threat detection. That's very easy. You can scan any environment for the negatives, right? To create a creative solution to that negative or to create meaning out of that or happiness out of that. That's what the rest of the brain evolved to do, right? And so what we're finding is it takes so much more intentionality and complexity, intelligence, and creativity to create happiness in a world that doesn't look like it should yield levels of happiness. But we know it can happen. So what we're looking for is how do we actually change our behavior and mindset and do it with other people enough that we can create the joy that we need to fuel seeing what we're actually capable of. Wow. I'm resonating with that. Sean, I always end the show with this, which is right in line with what you're talking about. I'll have you complete these three statements. Better humans are? Better humans are love-centered, optimistic about the future, and own that their actions have an impact not only upon their life, but upon others. Better work is? Meaningful, done with others or celebrated with others, and fueled by happiness rather than waiting for happiness to be the result. A better world has. A better world has more people who believe that their behavior and mindset have an impact upon what happens next, that are fueled by joy, and that can rise above the negativity that we see within this world to own being a positive champion. Mm, I love that. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. It was amazing to get to talk to you. It was great getting to talk (laughs) to you. That was Sean Aker, author of The Happiness Advantage and Happiness Researcher. One big thing before we go. I hope you're leaving this conversation recognizing that you have agency, that happiness can be yours regardless of a specific circumstance, that you have power over your patterns of feeling, acting, and thinking, and that sometimes your choice to be happy could make others uncomfortable. Not because there's something wrong with them, but because we're all sort of stuck in our own patterns of feeling, thinking, and acting. So, if you're craving more happiness, more joy, more contentment, and more meaning, don't go along with the herd. Get out in front and be the example. I can tell you from experience, the more you practice, the better you'll feel, and the more people will ask you how you're doing what you're doing. If this conversation got you strategizing around happiness, Share it with someone who might be searching for it too. 
and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me about what happiness means to you. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Drone makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.